Hello, and welcome to Working Historians, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. I'm James Fennessy. For the next five episodes, we are going to do something a bit different. In the past, we have posted a lot of episodes where historians present their research. For the first time, we are going to create a mini-series within a series about a historian's work. For this series, Rob Denning and I are going to talk with Dr. Adrian Calamel, a professor at Finger Lakes Community College, about the recent Arab Spring phenomenon in the Middle East. In this first episode, we are going to provide a general introduction to the events known collectively as the Arab Spring and talk a bit about its significance. In future episodes, we will talk specifically about individual countries involved, namely Egypt, Tunisia, Yemen, Libya, and Syria. Like I said, we will break this up over five podcast episodes. In the first episode, Dr. Calamel will help us build a general storyline or narrative of the Arab Spring, which began in 2011. Then we will focus on specific countries. In the second episode, we will talk about how the Arab Spring played out in Egypt and Tunisia. Then, in episode three, we will talk about Yemen and Libya. In our fourth episode, we will focus on Syria. In episode five, we'll draw some general conclusions about the Arab Spring and hopefully think about what happens next for the Middle East. Sit back and enjoy. Adrian, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, James. Pleasure to be here. Thank Definitely. you, Rob. And Rob, thank you for being here as well. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. So, Adrian, to start, could you provide some contextualization for the Arab Spring? Just let our listeners know what it was and what um, what the major factors are. Sure. The Arab Spring, it, it started, if you look at the date, it really, in earnest, it started right, right at the turn of um, 2011. Protests started to rise up around 2010, in the beginning of 2010, and there was discontent. But by 2011, it picked up um, momentum in the Middle East, and it affected countries that seemed stable from the outside. However, uh, if you you know you dig below the surface, there were some long structural flaws in the system of government uh, economics. There was just a, a, a series of um, discontent amongst the population, and it really wasn't one segment of the population where you see one segment of the population rising up over a particular grievance. Uh, it was a number of grievances that people had. Um, economic was one of the big factors. Uh, repression of the governments um, by the government was another large factor. So what it did was it, it, it really mobilized the entire country. And the way that it spread, it really caught everybody off guard. And that's what makes it such an interesting topic, for one. And the second part that makes it such an interesting topic is that a lot of the countries that were touched, especially Egypt, which we will talk about, that seemed like one of the most stable countries in the region. It is a large country, obviously. Uh, it has one of the, um, probably the, the most populous in the Middle East. And uh, you had a rule for, for 30, 33 some odd years, 30 odd years that uh, didn't look challenged, and they were swept aside in a very short period of time. 
Yeah, so I, I remember from 2011 when all this was happening that that was kind of the general consensus is kind of a dull or a, a kind of a, a surprise, where did that come from? So, and you mentioned a couple of kind of introductory reasons for it, uh, but let's let's think long-term here. So what are kind of the long-term and short-term causes of these uprisings that became known as Arab Spring? The long-term standing factors, they are the most important. Um, and you really have to, if you if you look at basically gaining independence, all these countries gained independence somewhere around the 1950s, uh, late 1940s, uh, certain governments came into place. And these were the governments that were in place right up until 2011. Um, so they continued along the same type of um, model that they had used with uh, running the country. So they didn't change. I mean, people had been living with these conditions for over 60 years. So if you look at the long-term factors, um, number one is uh, there, was, there was a real population explosion in the Middle East between, the 19, between 1970 and 2010. You had, uh, for example, um, Egypt uh, went from 128 million to 359 million people. And with that, with the population explosion, what you have is younger generations are going through schools, uh, through um, secondary education, going through university, earning degrees, and they weren't able to find jobs. So a lot of times when you find um, population explosions, two things that happen are food becomes an issue in some cases, as we've seen in, in past history, and also um, unemployment. Uh, people not being able to find jobs, there just weren't enough jobs available. And this, if you look at the jobs and the reason why the jobs weren't available, and, and this is my take on it, and I, I would say that many people would just, would agree with this is that a lot of the jobs within Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, if you look at all of them, they were government jobs. They were public sector jobs, okay? And what happened was with the growth of the population, there just weren't enough public sectors, uh, public jobs in, uh, in, in the public sector to employ people. So what that led to was they could not create jobs outside the state. Everybody, when they graduated from college, what they were looking for was a job within the state. And those jobs were no longer available. So that is number one, if you're looking at population explosion as well as unemployment, they kind of went hand in hand with each other. So what you have are a bunch of 20-something, 30-something individuals are getting out of college and in the past, they'd really been guaranteed a job within the public sector because the, the population wasn't that large and they could, they could absorb it. And when you move to year 2010, that's not the case. Um, they were unable to do so. And if you look at these countries, they had something called what you would call the authoritarian bargain, if you want to look at it. It's like an exclusionary uh, social contract that people had. And it was that the government would provide services, employment, food, energy subsidies in return for po political support. And that's the way that a lot of these individuals were able to stay in power for so long was that they were meeting the needs of the population. But once that population explosion happened, 
you found people coming out of universities and um, that social contract was broken. People were no longer able to, uh, by the turn of the millennium, the jobs just weren't there. So connecting two of the points that you've actually made, um, one about the the prevalence of, of jobs within the public sector and working for the government, and two about this authoritarian contract. Uh, can we take a step back for a second? And I know that we're yeah. talking about a lot of different a lot of different countries at this point, but what are some of the the types of governments that we're seeing? Because if we're talking about people rebelling against oppression, if we're talking about authoritarian contracts, what types of governments were created in this post-colonial era? I'm, you know, I assume that many of yes. these these state structures uh, appeared after the decline of European influence in the Middle East. So maybe we can talk about that for a second. Sure. Um, what you basically had were um, countries with single-party par- single systems. Uh, in the case of Egypt, you did have a couple other parties, such as the Waft Party. There are a couple parties that were invo- um, involved political participation. But, uh, you know, th- there's a big caveat there. Uh, you will see that with uh, countries such as Tunisia, uh, Libya, uh, Egypt, it was a military government. It was a uh, run by ex-military leaders. And it really kind of, uh, if you go back to uh, independence, a lot of people, in, in this case, uh, Nasser, Gamal Abdel Nasser, um, became kind of the, the figurehead for what a leader should be like in the Middle East. There was, I would say, the political voice of the people was really oppressed, not uh, suppressed. The leaders of these countries, they generally, if you look at them and the countries that we're going to go through, you're talking about 20 to 30 plus years of having one person rule, running the entire country. Every once in a while, people would um, rise up have some complaints, but it would be a p- particular sector of the population, and the government would make certain concessions to try and quell those those problems. So it was single party, military rule, um, with strong connections to the army, and individuals that ruled from for you know 20 to 30 years that in a lot of cases took over in military codes of one sort of a nature. Thanks. I think that's really important to emphasize because what we're talking about here are relatively new and young governments. And we might be talking about, you know, 20 to 30 years of rule, but in the larger scheme of states and nation states and countries, those aren't longstanding governments. And I think it's really important to emphasize that in relation to the Middle East, because what I hear from a lot of my students, um, and even in just general conversation, are these assumptions that, you know, well, this is how it's been forever in that region. You've always had these religious conflicts. You've always had this um, authoritarian approach um, and these very strict regulations on social and religious practices. And I think it's important to note that the Middle East, just like every other region in the world, is a region that's in flux and that grows and evolves. And, and you know, it might not be constant um, constant improvement in the, the modern sense of history where you constantly see things as improving for the people or um, in relation to individual rights. But but it isn't stagnant. Yes. 
And, and, and the state system, if you look at the state system, um, you know, it's a European construct uh, that was put in place by Europeans and to try and create a government around that. It's difficult. Egypt is the one country that has a long history of kind of statehood going back to early Egypt and centralization in, in ancient Egypt. But if you look at a lot of the countries, there is, um, if you look at the Middle East, you, you have to always remember that there's this element of tribalism uh, that takes place. And just because you lump a bunch of people into nicely fixed borders doesn't mean that everybody's going to get along in the, inside those borders. So you were talking about the, their version, basically, of like a social contract, where if you support the government, the government will reward you with jobs, basically. And that obviously sounds amazingly expensive <laughs> even yes. before you get to that massive population boom because then of course there's no way you're going to be able to pay for all that but even back in the old days before the population boom that's going to be very expensive and this this is probably a fairly obvious question but you know uh, and, and then also to support the military of course that's keeping yeah. the, the government in power so the obvious question is where's that money coming from a lot of the money, and that's the thing with the countries, most of the countries are involved with the Arab Spring. They are what you would call oil-poor countries. Uh, they don't have the benefit of uh, Saudi Arabia or Iran or Iraq. You're talking about Tunisia, oil-poor. Um, you're talking about uh, Egypt, oil-poor. Uh, Libya has enough just to su sustain itself. Uh, Syria has enough to sustain itself. So the a, a lot of the money that came in was foreign aid, as we'll see and we'll talk in a little bit of it in a little while. Uh, when the global market ended up crashing back, you know, back in uh, 2008 and, and a little bit before that, 2007, 2008, it really had a significant impact on these countries because the IMF and the World Bank had loaned a lot of money to these countries and all of a sudden they found themselves seriously in debt. Uh, the other point I would like to bring up about uh, this authoritarian regime or the, uh, the social contract that they had, is what you saw during this time period was a real growth in the middle class. Um, the upper class was always going to prosper. Uh, they were able to, I won't say siphon off money, but make sure that they're taking care of the individuals in charge. When it comes to the middle class, you'll see that it was the middle class that was finding those jobs, getting those, getting the placement in the public sector, so that when the global meltdown, the financial meltdown happened, uh, it really severely impacted the middle class, as well as you know, there were demands made by the, the World Bank and the IMF that uh, there needed to be some real, uh, what you call, belt tightening or looking at the, the, the financial states of each country and trying to try and improve it, try and make some adjustments to improve their economy. But as we know, that, that kind of thing does, does not happen overnight. And, and I'm sorry, and the one other thing, with, Rob mentioned a great point about the military. And with the military, and I will point to Egypt because they're a little different. The military, 
Egypt gets a lot of their money. For, I think it's about seven to eight percent of their money comes from tourism. Tourism is a big factor, part of their economy. If you look at the military there, they basically run a state within a state. They control a lot of the public sector industries and companies. So what happens is the people within the military continue to, in the upper levels of the military, they did fine. They made money. The military just absorbed a lot of the private sector jobs, the jobs that could have helped the Egyptian economy. When you have the military basically siphoning off half of the, running basically a state within a state, it's going to lead to economic problems. So this led me to think of, of two points, really. Um, first, it's interesting that you're mentioning that these are oil-poor countries because, as we all know, kind of the stereotypical conception that most people have of the Middle East is that, you know, all of these countries are drowning in oil, and yes. therefore they're all able to exploit that resource to become mega-rich or whatever. But it's interesting to hear that these particular countries that are participating in the Arab Spring were not uh, oil-rich. So that's, that's an interesting point. So it's um, interesting that this is all basically due to financial aid <laughs> from our yes. you know from our college student perspective um, but foreign aid from other countries and so yeah they're creating this this massive amount of debt and so it's interesting that you're talking about how this time of reckoning came when there was this talk about belt tightening and all of that so on the one hand you've got all the new population that you can't fund jobs for and to begin with and then suddenly you have to tighten the belt and now you're also probably cutting jobs for the people that already were employed and a lot of those posts are probably going to include like the military and all of that and so you're you're kind of creating this recipe for potential disaster if you've got a whole lot of unemployed poor people but you also have unemployed military personnel and you also have formerly prosperous middle class people who are now being kind of cast into doubt because of this belt tightening and all that and I can imagine how that would all contribute to this kind of stew of chaos. Yes, and, and, and what happened was with the belt tightening, the people in charge and the leadership of the countries, they made sure that it did not affect them. Oh, sure. <laughs> of course, you know, and they, they, they like to stay in charge. So what happened was there was, there was a call for economic liberalization, um, you know, structural adjustment programs that were made that were supposed to turn the economy around. Unfortunately, what happened was they did make adjustments, but the adjustments only happened and uh, benefited the, the upper crust of society, the people in leadership, the cronies that surrounded the different leaders. What ended up happening was the subsidies, part of that um, that social contract, you know, there were energy subsidies, food subsidies, all of a sudden um, subsidies of most of the basic, basic commodities were all of a sudden canceled. Okay, so that puts an enormous pressure on both the middle and lower classes within um, these societies. The government jobs were reduced, okay, and that includes military, um, you know, some lower ranking officers being relieved of their duties and whatnot. Um, but also the government jobs were no longer, they were seen as part of this uh, structural adjustment. Um, so they reduced the, the government jobs, but there were the low lying government jobs. And then there was a taxation that all of a sudden that was not there before, but all of a sudden 
the governments of these different countries decided that we're going to put taxation on consumption, basically a sales tax, sales tax on consumption of all goods. So you can see where that is going to lead to economic disaster. And the economic conversation is also important because it demonstrates exactly how connected as a world we are. So sometimes when we think of the Middle East, we think about them, as we talked about earlier, connected to the world as far as oil production. Um, you know, the, the, the darker side is there is a popular tendency to think about the Middle East as a, a producer of global terrorism. But we don't really think about how the economies of the Middle East beyond you know, oil production are intertwined with a, with a global economy and how fluctuations in the global economy like happened in the, the recession in, God, what was it, 2008, 2007, 2008, um, how that would impact poorer countries in the Middle East as well, which, which raises a, a good point about global connections to the Middle East and you know, not to bring it back to a Western perspective all the time, but just wondering, were there any undercurrents of um, reaction to the West within these within these uprisings, either positive or negative? So, you know, Iran is a bit outside of our conversation uh, that yeah. we're talking about today. But, you know, we see a reaction against Mossadegh and the influence of the British government and the CIA overthrowing the government in Iran and installing the Shah, which then leads to popular revolt in the 70s and so we see the how western action can impact the middle east so what are the what are the other global factors that might be impacting this arab spring either positive or negative one of the positives that came out of this during this time from a western perspective if you look at egypt it had been an ally of the united states since the camp david accords okay back in 1979 so if, 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 you, if you look in the world of real politique, we would do everything to prop up that government, the Mubarak, Hosni Mubarak government. What we found was that with Tunisia, all of a sudden when a street vendor lights himself on fire, self-immolation that resembles scenes of Vietnam, all of a sudden the world started to pay attention. The President of the United States, uh, President Obama, he came out and said, you know, we stand behind the Tunisian people. This kind of thing cannot happen. When you move on to Egypt, we also stood behind the Egyptian people. Um, and Obama, he made you know public declarations that you know this is in the hands of the Egyptian people. We don't plan on getting involved in this. The only place that we did get involved, and I will say that I talk about oil poor countries. Libya does have we would call sweet crude oil. And that is the one country that the West did get involved in. And you can see that with uh, the, 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 we'll get into it in, in future podcasts. That is the one country that we did get involved in. Now, if you look at from the Middle Eastern perspective, there's kind of a, I would say, a regional struggle that's taking place. And this is a topic for another for another day. But if you look at Egypt, that is a, a Sunni majority country. You look at Tunisia, that is a Sunni majority country. You look at Li Libya, a Sunni majority country. But then if you look at Iran, you look at Iraq, you look at Lebanon, um, they are very heavily uh, Shiite populations. And um, this is a topic for another day, uh, the Sunni-Shia divide. So there was this regional conflict that was taking place between the two. 
And also, if you look at it from a regional perspective, from a Middle Eastern perspective, oil is important, but shipping lanes are almost just as important because the oil, it has to get somewhere. And when Egypt falls, the question becomes, okay, Suez Canal, what's going to happen with oil production? So whenever you see something like this happen in the Middle East, uh, such as what's happening in Yemen right now, a couple other areas as well, there's concern about being able to get that oil out of the country into the world market. And that's going to impact the oil prices and gas prices. I, gas prices are higher than they've been in a quite a long time. And it has to do with that instability. Trust me, I noticed that being in California. Yeah. <laughs> this is possibly the most I've ever paid for gas in my entire yeah, life. Yeah, it, it really is. <laughs> All right. And so you've been mentioning Tunisia, Egypt, Libya. So these are in forthcoming episodes, you're going to be focusing on these specific countries, right? You're not going to focus on the more oil-rich countries. You're going to be focusing on these oil-poor countries that you've been talking about. What little tidbits can you give us on those? I know you're going to go into more in details later, but what would you like to say about those uh, up front now for a quick overview? The way that I'm kind of approaching this is that Tunisia and Egypt happened really quickly. I talked about the self-immolation of the vegetable vendor. He was selling vegetables. Supposedly, he didn't have a license. The police came in, took away, confiscated all his produce, which was what he had to live on and to provide for his family, and then um, treated him very poorly within the, the police district system, whatever it was. He was eventually released, and then he set himself on fire. And then shortly thereafter, and this is where you go through all segments of society, you have lawyers on December 31st of 2010, there's a massive march of about, I think it was 80% of the lawyers, all lawyers in Tunisia stood up and got in the streets and marched uh, in opposition to the government. By January 14th, you're talking 16 days later, a guy who had been in office for 24 years, he's removed, he leaves office, 16 days, He's out of office. And this is a guy that ruled the country for 24 years. And the gentleman that ruled it before him ruled for 32 years. So um, that's one reason why I'm focusing on Tunisia and Egypt in Egypt as well, because the events are very similar with Egypt and Tunisia. And that's why we're going to tie them together in one podcast, because that happened very quickly as well. January 25th, you start to see the street protests take place. And this is, you know, roughly one week after um, the president of Tunisia, Ben Ali, leaves office. Okay. Um, people start to assemble. They start to assemble in Tahrir Square, which means Martyrs Square. Um, it resembled, uh, if you remember back to the colored revolutions that went through Eastern Europe, uh, such as the Orange Revolution in the Ukraine. By February 11th, 18 days later, Mubarak resigns. This is a guy who had 30-year rule, which makes it uh, just a dramatic event. So that's why those two are being pushed together, is because they were longstanding uh, governments um, that were Western-leaning, if you look at geopolitical alliances, but they were over in a fortnight. <laughs> they were gone. and. It was so sudden and, and, and that it just caught everybody off guard. 
people would expect that uh, Egypt would have violently cracked down on these protests and uh, make sure that the Mubarak government stayed in, in power. But that did not happen. When you look at Yemen, Yemen is a country that has had a long history. And we're going to look at Yemen and we're going to look at Libya together um, in one of the podcasts. You have January 25th. I mentioned Egypt, the country's rising up against the Mubarak regime. By January 27th, that's two days later, you have roughly 16,000 people marching against the um, regime in Yemen, against um, uh, Saleh. But he was not as easy to remove. He was more willing to use force. And if you look at all the countries that we're going to be looking at, Tunisia, Egypt, Yemen, Libya, and Syria, Yemen is by far the most poor uh, out, of, out of all the countries. It doesn't have an oil base. It doesn't have an economy. It really was um, being held together by a, um, by a dictator. So Saleh, the, the leader, uh, he becomes hostage in his palace, and people are protesting. And he does a lot of double dealing back and forth, saying he's going to step down after the next elections. Um, but what had started to look like was going to happen in 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 Yemen was that it basically turned into almost a, a patriarchal monarchy, where it was going to be he was going to hand it down to his brother. And the same thing happens with Egypt. Hosni Mubarak had his son in line, ready to take place. Then when we look at Libya, February 17th, you start to see the large-scale demonstrations. That's one month after the Yemen demonstrations begin. And they quickly intensify. Uh, Libya, it's a little bit different because Muammar Gaddafi is willing to use force and be ruthless about it and he has full control of the army. So what happened was, if you look at Libya, it is basically, if you could if you could split it down the center, it was originally two different countries that were put together in this state formation. Eastern Libya was a Qaddafi stronghold. Okay, Western Libya, which is uh, Cyrenaica province, where Benghazi is, um, Tobruk is, if you know, if you remember World War II and the siege of Tobruk, um, that part had always been marginalized, and it, it comes back again to tribalism, and they weren't from the same tribe as Qaddafi. So there would be periodic uprisings over Qaddafi's rule, and he would go down and put him down with force and be able to do so easily. That's one reason why the Europeans decided to intervene along with, it was a NATO, it first came through the UN Security Council, then it was passed on to the EU, and then eventually NATO took control of that campaign and that bombing campaign that eventually dislodged them. And then finally, Syria, oh, where to begin? Um, <laughs> yeah. Syria, March 15th, um, another one month after the protests begin in Libya, you have massive protests in Damascus and Aleppo, which are the two largest and the most important cities in all of Syria. And initially, all they wanted were modest reforms, but the government reaction turned it into an outright rebellion. It was ruthless. And we can see it on the news every day, the ruthlessness of the Syrian regime. 
and um, that's why they have been able to stay in power. So if you look at the five different countries, Tunisia and Egypt fell by the wayside. Yemen, there was never really a strong central government. So Saleh was pretty easy to remove. The dictator was fairly easy to remove. Libya, Syria, strong military, controlled by the government, not afraid to use force in indiscriminate fashion. And to some extent, I imagine we'll be talking about outside influences in many of these areas, but particularly in Syria. Syria, yes, yes. So this has been a really great introduction, I think, to a lot of the things that we'll be talking about. And I really do appreciate you taking the time to not only provide this introduction, but to then lead us through these conversations in more detail in future podcasts, because I think these are really important points that we we need to think about. And it's really great background information that people need to consider when they're talking about the Middle East, because there's such... I don't want to say ignorance, but there's there are blinders that go up when it comes to the Middle East, and we only think about it in you know in the U.S. We we tend to only think about it in relation to U.S. intervention or how international terrorism might impact us. But these are people with hopes, dreams, aspirations. These are governments with corruption that that have been in power for a long time. We'll start to look at middle class frustration, corruption, the different nature of the different regimes, because as James was saying, we kind of look at it as one big, broad region, and there's a lot of individuality there. There's It's not this big monolithic block, and that's a confusion that a lot of people run into when they talk about Islam. They think all Islam is the same, um, and it's not. Uh, there's different variations. And each of these revolutions and each of the countries in the Middle East have their own distinct characteristics. And that's what makes this so interesting is that these different characteristics and the different issues that the different governments were dealing with. And I shouldn't say the government, it's really the population that was dealing with these issues. They finally um, had had enough and they stood up. And in some cases, we'll see that there was success. In other cases, we don't know. Yemen, Libya, Syria, you really have civil wars taking place in all three countries. Syria is the one that's on the news, but Yemen and Libya, you have civil wars taking place in both of those countries. And as James mentioned, foreign intervention, that's going to happen in Yemen, and we're also going to see it in Libya as well. All right, well, that sounds great, and I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of these episodes uh, as we uh, broadcast these. I think this is going to be a, a really interesting series, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from you. So am I. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be exciting, and it will become a lot more interesting when we get into the individual countries and kind of do a play-by-play of what happened here and what the outcomes are, because that's a lot of questions. I mean, Rob, you asked me a couple of weeks ago, the big question is, what happened in the Arab Spring? Where did it go? What were the end results? We're going to examine those, and um, that's what's going to make it uh, especially interesting, at least for me. Well, and I think for everybody, because there is a tendency to think of the Middle East as the Middle East, and we need to step back and realize that these are different countries. These are, you know, while there might be common connections, whether we're talking about economic factors or um, outside influence, uh, these are very specific reactions to 
very specific experiences. And I'm really looking forward to getting into the details even more. As a Europe, Europeanist, I have a general understanding of the, you know, the, the trends that have occurred throughout the Middle East, especially in relation to uh, outside influence. But the individual experiences of these people, particularly in the more recent years, it's going to be fascinating to get into this and really get a better understanding of everything that's going on in the Middle East. Yeah, James, you really nailed it. It's all these different countries. They're all different, but there's little elements and pieces of the, the factors that led the populations to rise up. So, yeah, you're right on right on the mark there that, you know, you, you can't look at it as one big event. You need to kind of look at it as country specific. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today, Adrian, and we look forward to the next podcast. Rob, thank you for being with us as well. This is going to be a very enjoyable series. Yeah, thanks, everybody. This will be great. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Rob. And for the next podcast, we'll be going into Tunisia and Egypt. So those are the ones that kicked it off and started it all. And really the success stories out of the Arab Spring. Great. Looking forward to it. Fantastic. So excellent. So everybody stay tuned. Yes. Cheers. Bye now.